Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to move into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 17 through 20. I was asked this morning in the car by Uncle Joe, how do you know what to preach every Sunday? I said, well, that's easy. I've chosen to go through the Sermon on the Mount, so I just take the next passage that forces you to handle difficult passages of Scripture when you come upon them. I've known pastors to actually skip over passages of Scripture that they didn't want to handle. And we have one before us this morning. Let me read the verses, and then I'm going to go through this at a slower pace than what I normally do. People are saying, oh boy, that's a problem. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I will tell you that verse 19 is what scares me the most. Because when you take it upon yourself, being gifted of God, chosen of God, put into a place of our position where you're preaching and teaching God's word, verse 19 becomes a very, very stark warning. But we won't get there this morning. Some have listed these verses as the most difficult in the entire Bible to understand, to interpret, and then understand. And when you look at it, you think, well, come on, it can't be that difficult. There are some very important debates that necessarily enter into the interpretation of these verses. Some very important theological ramifications surface from one's interpretation of these verses, and that involves some interwoven themes of what we call biblical theology. What comes to the surface is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the ministry of Christ and then a result of that, the church. Another thing that comes out of the, uh, an interpretation of these verses is the place of the law 
in relation to the gospel. Another thing that comes out of this that surfaces as you interpret it is what is our relation to the law? How does this passage of Scripture fit with other New Testament Testament passages that teach that certain parts of the law have been fulfilled and hence are abolished and obsolete? Let me give you an example of that. Look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 19. Mark chapter 7 and verse 19. I'm going to be tipping my hand here. That's okay. In my study of this passage of Scripture, I wrestled and I struggled. But in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, actually let's back up and go to verse 14. And when he had called the people unto me, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from outside of a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. When he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning this parable. Now, why would they ask about that? Well, because if you go back to the law... If you ate certain foods, what happened to you? You became unclean. You were defiled. And so for a Jewish person to hear what Jesus had just spoken would have meant more to them than it does to us today, is what I'm saying. Are you so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever thing from outside entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into where? His heart, but into his stomach, and goeth out into the draught, purging all foods. Now, who has the ESV? Matt, are you using the ESV? Read verse 19 in the ESV, please. Oh, boy, what just happened there? Jesus Christ just said there is now, from this point forward, no distinction between clean and unclean foods. Why? Well, let's go to Acts chapter 10. I'm not going to read this whole passage of Scripture, but in Acts chapter 10... And in Acts chapter 11, you are familiar with the story, and that is, this is the time in, in the ministry of the disciples, the apostles, when the first Gentiles were saved. And Peter is on a rooftop, and he's meditating, and he sees this great sheet come down, and what's in the sheet? All sorts of animals. What kind of animals? To a Jewish man, there were in that sheet clean and unclean animals. And then this command comes, Peter, rise up, kill, and do what? Eat. For a Jewish man to hear that saying, kill that unclean animal and eat it, would have been an abomination to him. 
Now, folks, that was done three times. On the third time, the sheet is taken up into heaven. There's a knock on the door, and who's at the door? Verse 17, now while Peter was perplexed what this vision should mean, behold, there were men who, met from, who were sent from Cornelius and had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. The whole crux of the matter is that Peter then was bidden by the Spirit of God to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, which hadn't occurred yet. Jesus was preparing them for that when he declared all, all foods what? Clean. And the response to Peter is, what God has cleansed, that call you not, don't you call that common or unclean? And basically, we're being given an insight into what the clean and the unclean laws were all about. And let me just, and I'm tipping my hand here, but in Jesus Christ and the choosing of his disciples and him telling them to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, that aspect of, this, of the law was being fulfilled. In Christ. And so there are certain portions of Scripture that teach that certain parts of the law have been fulfilled, hence abolished, like Jesus did with the clean and the unclean. Take a look at Hebrews chapter, let's go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. One of these days I'll preach on this as one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Verse 1, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come. In other words, they were portraying something, but it was just a shadow. Not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make those who come to it perfect. And in chapter 10, we have a contrast being made between the sacrifices of which there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices being made, all sorts of animal blood being shed, and the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, why do we not sacrifice animals for our sin today? Because in Jesus Christ, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, verse 10. That part of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So for us to come and gather together and then offer a lamb sacrifice to cover our sins for the, the past week would be an abomination to what Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary. I point out these things, and then we can go to Hebrews chapter 7 where we're talking about Melchizedek, and Jesus Christ has risen as a priest, a high priest, for us after the order of not Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And so the whole Aaronic priesthood has been set aside because Christ fulfilled it in his person. 
And so there are New Testament passages that teach that certain parts of the law have been fulfilled and hence are abolished. They're obsolete. They don't have any force for us today because they've been fulfilled. So the question then becomes, how much of the law is still valid for today? That flows out of one's interpretation of this passage of Scripture. How does Jesus fulfill the law? These are all aspects of truth that will surface out of one's interpretation of this text. And as I said, some have listed these verses as the most difficult in the entire Bible to interpret. So let's get into it. These verses are an actual introduction to the body of the sermon. They stand at the beginning of a new section. This new section shows us what a life of righteousness looks like and how it relates to the Old Testament. Now, as we go through this, I need you to get out of your mind that the Jewish people knew anything about the New Testament. The New Testament wasn't written. When I talk about the scriptures, and when the Jewish people heard the word scriptures, they're talking about what we have in our Bible called the Old Testament. This life of righteousness, which the law prescribed, but it was misunderstood by the Jews. We find that in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to show the character of the righteousness of one who has entered the kingdom of heaven. So in this introduction, Jesus relates his mission, Jesus relates his teaching to the the Old Testament, or can I just say, to the scriptures, which the Jewish people knew and loved. This is how Jesus sees himself in relation to history, in relation to God's purposes and the kingdom of God as it relates to the Old Testament, the scriptures that the Jewish people had. And so in verses 17 and 18, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So in verses 17 and 18, we have Christ's mission in relation to the scriptures. I could put the word law in there. I could put the word Old Testament scriptures, which for us, we understand that. And what is Christ's mission? Verse 17, his mission is to fulfill the law. Now notice how he, how he starts that verse, or we could say this introduction to the body of the sermon, which starts in verse 21. Think not. Think not. I'm going to get into this, but Jesus Christ has done a lot up to this point in his ministry. This sermon doesn't start his ministry. He has had an ongoing ministry up to this point. There's been a lot of news about Christ, about the things that he has done, about the things that he has said. And so Jesus is going to try to 
not try, Jesus is going to correct that. Think not. In other words, do not form a wrong idea of why I have come. Do not think like that. This statement is meant to set aside any misunderstanding that people may have as to Jesus coming and the nature or the message of the kingdom of God which he is preaching. Do not have a wrong idea about my teaching, about my actions, or my coming in relation to the scriptures which you possess and you have heard. You could state it this way. If you are thinking this way, stop it. Do not even start to think this way. That's the meaning of this phrase. Now, let me say that this should clear up some misconceptions for us. But here are some misconceptions that uh, we need to realize or understand as we begin to interpret these verses. So here are some misconceptions because what Jesus had already done and said up to this point, his teaching and his practice. Jesus has appeared on the scene Suddenly, people were forced to take notice of him. His miracles, his teaching were being spread abroad. Think about what he has done up to this point. And if you look at a, what is called a harmony of the Gospels, and you understand where the, the, the Sermon on the Mount was spoken in relation to how Jesus started his ministry, the first thing you realize is that he has cleansed the temple before this, for the first time, in John chapter 2 and verse 13. Now think about what that must have done to the Jewish people and their ideas about who he is or who he was or what he came to do. He's tossed the money changers' tables. He's driven those thieves from the temple in John chapter 2. And worse than that, he called a tax collector to be a disciple. And he had eaten with tax collectors and sinners in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Jewish people didn't do that. He also said in Luke chapter 5, verses 36 to 39, that in his ministry, some things were going to become new. And he uses the idea of, of um, old oil skins and old garments. And you don't put you know, uh, uh, new wine into to, um, old uh, wineskins. And you don't take a new piece of garment, a new piece of uh, cloth, and try to patch up an old garment. It'll tear. It'll make it worse. He, so he said there's going to be some things new. Luke chapter 6. And he had, according to the common teaching of the day, completely disregarded their notions of the Sabbath. His disciples were... Oh, man, they were working on the Sabbath. They took an ear of corn, and they rubbed the corn in their hands, and they took the kernels of the corn, and they ate it. God forbid! 
Jesus healed on the Sabbath in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. So much so that, that this ridiculous priest or Pharisee, whoever he was, stood up and said, there are six days in which man should work, therefore come and be healed. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, don't come and be healed. Man, what a better day to come and be healed on the day that God set aside to worship him. Am I getting a little kind of wound up about this? Yeah, a little bit. He healed on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, a man was dropped down through the roof in front of him because they couldn't get in because of the crowd. And Jesus had the audacity, not just to heal him, but to forgive him of his sins. To the Jewish people, this may have seemed or appeared that Jesus was abolishing the law and he was some revolutionary when in fact, keep this in mind, there was nothing that Jesus ever did or said or performed that was contrary to the spirit of the scriptures that the Jews knew about. Nothing. And so Jesus says, think not. Well, there were some other misconceptions that were arising in the ministry of Christ at that time. Jesus was not a Pharisee. He didn't attend their schools. He did not become a teacher following the normal channels. That caused people to be troubled. In fact, he criticized the teachers of the day, and he denounced their teaching. He didn't sit around like the teachers of the day, expounding the law. Jesus' message was different. He seemed, and I underline that word seemed, he seemed to be breaking the rules and regulations on purpose. And so the faithful Jew during that time would want to know of anyone who came on the scene claiming to be from God, what do they think about the law and the prophets? Does this man believe the scriptures, to us, the Old Testament scriptures. Now, there were different groups of people that heard Jesus say this. Think not. There were those who were tired of the demanding legalism of the Pharisees. And they were hoping the Messiah would free them from the burden of, these, uh, of mechanically keeping, rigidly keeping all sorts of meaningless demands. There were others who among the Jews saw that the, inst the instructions of the Pharisees and the scribes as the true interpretation of the Mosaic law. And that because Jesus wasn't keeping those he was setting aside the law. Remember, there was the actual law that Moses gave, and there was the tradition handed down from the elders, which was the interpretation of the law. And eventually, people didn't know what the law said. All they knew was the interpretation of the law by the Pharisees and the scribes. 
So in the people's thinking, the oral tradition, they wouldn't have said this, but in their thinking, the oral tradition had actually replaced the law of God and had become more authoritative. Later Jewish writers thought that the Messiah would actually abolish the law and would bring in a new order. And some thought that Jesus was doing just that. And so he says to them, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I want you to keep this in mind. The Jews missed the Messiah. They didn't recognize him when he came. With all the prophecies that pointed to him, all the miracles that Christ performed, it's incredible that they could have not recognized their own Messiah. may I say that the problem was is that their own ideas of the Messiah, their own misinterpretations of the Old Testament scripture caused them to be blind when Jesus Christ the Messiah came on the scene. This is not in my notes, but I would say that we should take a word of caution with that is when we think we have it right we could be wrong we could be blinded the Jewish people knew their scriptures they thought they had it right And they were blinded by their bias. They were blinded by their own ideas. They were blinded with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees by their own ambition. And when Christ came on the scene, they didn't recognize their own Messiah. So Jesus says, think not. Think not. Not. Don't even start to think this way. And Jesus may be using this phrase as a teaching device to make clear his teaching, what his mission is, and to remove all misunderstandings. They are to think in a certain way about his coming and how it is related to their law and their prophets. And Jesus is anticipating a reaction to what follows. I mean, wouldn't you have a reaction to verse 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I've never committed the actual physical act of adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. What is Jesus saying? It's possible to break that commandment without actually physically committing the sin of adultery. So there would have been a reaction 
to the things that Jesus is about to say in this sermon. And he's anticipating that reaction with this statement. Think not. He's preparing the people for what follows. He's going to show them that everything that he is going to teach is in absolute harmony with their scriptures. Let me repeat that. He is preparing the people listening to this sermon and us by extension that everything that he is going to teach is in absolute harmony with the Old Testament scriptures. Nothing that he teaches will contradict what they know in the scriptures. Nothing. And so he says, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. Notice that I am come, or I came. Folks, that is the language of purpose. Jesus had a mission, and he knew what it was. I am come. I've come. I'm here to do something. Not to destroy, but to fulfill. He came for a purpose, and he was very conscious of his mission at every day of his life. And folks, there was a timetable as well that he was keeping. He had to die on a certain day, and he was there and died on that day. He was sent by his father with a mission. And according to verse 17, what is that mission? Not to destroy, but to fulfill. To fulfill all that was written of me in the law and the prophets. And so think not that I am come. I want to skip forward to the law or the prophets very quickly here. And then we'll come back and look at that word destroy. The law or the prophets. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This phrase, I want you to keep your finger there, and I want you to look at chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount and verse 12. Chapter 7 and verse 12. Therefore all things, whatever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This phrase, the law and the prophets, is one end, the, the first one is in verse 17, is one end of a set of bookends. The other is in chapter 7 and verse 12. It is what commentators have called, and I don't understand it, but they call it an inclusio. It's similar to the Beatitudes, where theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we talked about that, verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The other end of that is in verse 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's two bookends. And so the body of the sermon is included in these two bookends. We're looking at the introduction to the sermon. If you look at chapter 7 and verse 13, what do we have? An invitation. Enter in at the narrow gate. So we have this sermon encompassed 
in between these two bookends, which marks what we would call the body of the sermon. So you have an introduction, we're looking at that, verses 17 to 20. The sermon ends in chapter 12, or verse 12 of chapter 7. The invitation then is given in verse 13. D.A. Carson said of these verses, specifically verses 17 and 18, Jesus is taking pains to relate his teaching and his place in history or in the history of redemption to the Old Testament scriptures. Now notice the word or there, the law or the prophets, neither one, neither the law or the prophets is going to be abolished. Neither of them. Although the law is what is going to be spoken of after this phrase, specifically starting in verse 21, the or points to both being included in the statement, no part, no part of the entire scripture is to be set aside, to be destroyed, abolished. Jesus will not destroy any part or the whole of it. Now, how did the Jewish people refer to the Old Testament scriptures? At this point, I should stop saying Old Testament, but for us, it's the Old Testament scriptures. But how did the Jewish people refer to their scriptures? And I do need to take some time to prove that what Jesus is speaking about here is not just the law of Moses and then some of the prophets. That what Jesus is speaking about here is the entirety of what we call the Old Testament. So how did the Jewish people refer to their scriptures? Well, they referred to it as the law and the prophets. Very specifically, the law and and the prophets. Chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore all things whatsoever, whatever you would that men do unto you, do ye even to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Look at chapter 11 and verse 13 of the book of Matthew. And I'm going to go through a bunch of these, some of them more important than others. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, Matthew eleven thirteen. Look at Matthew twenty two forty. You're going to see this phrase come up over and over again. Matthew 22 and verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then look at Luke 16:16. 16, 16. Luke 16:16. 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. John 1.45, if you would please. John 1.45. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We're starting to get a picture here that Moses and the prophets are involved in the law and the prophets. 
Take a look at Acts 28.23. Acts 28.23. Speaking about Paul, and when they had appointed him a day, meaning Paul, there came to him many into his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning until evening. The one I want to get to is Luke 24, because sometimes they they made a a third identification there, but take a look at Luke 24. This should be enough to settle it for us. Luke 24, Jesus reveals himself to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, In verse 25, Then he said unto them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Boy, it would have been nice to be at this point hearing what Jesus had to say. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them, and what's the next phrase? In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Then look at verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. What I'm trying to get at and what commentators go through great lengths to prove is that this designation, the law and the prophets, was a common way, a common phrase, to refer to the entire Old Testament scriptures. Everything, from in our Bibles, from Genesis to Malachi. Now, that's not how the Jewish scriptures were split up or organized, but for us, if we would say everything from Genesis to Malachi, we would understand that we're talking about the Old Testament scriptures and everything in between. And so this phrase was a common way by the Jewish people to refer to the entire scriptures that they had at that time. It doesn't refer necessarily to the New Testament, but what they had, the Old Testament scriptures. And so the phrase was very common to refer to all of the scriptures. Now, I can give you many more verses here that prove this and that use the phrase, the law and the prophets. But would you agree with me that we're talking, that Jesus is relating himself not to just the law of Moses, not to just some of the prophets, but to the entirety of scripture? Would you agree with that? Can I see some heads? Okay, this is, I mean, there's all sorts of verses here, but this is what this is talking about. It's a common phrase to refer to the entirety of Scripture. Let me give you just one quick example. I'll probably use this again. But speaking about Jesus, a historical event in the nation of Israel prophesied what was going to happen to Jesus. 
It's a very simple phrase. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And what happened to the nation of Israel in God calling them out of Egypt predicted that Jesus would be called out of Egypt. That was fulfilled. Not necessarily part of the law of Moses, the actual law. Not necessarily part of, part of the prophets, as it were, but a historical event that pictured something that was going to happen to Christ. Now, what is meant by the law? What is meant when we see the word law in the Bible? Now, some say that the law is divided into three parts. It helps us to kind of wrap our minds around the law. First of all, there's the moral law. The moral law, specifically the Ten Commandments and the moral principles which are taught elsewhere. And in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 21 and after that, Jesus is going to speak specifically about the moral law. That's primarily what he's talking about. But there was more to the law of Moses than just the moral precepts. There's what we would call the judicial law. This was the legislative law that was given to the nation of Israel. This told them how they were to order their lives, especially in relation to one another in that nation. Those principles that the judicial law was based upon came from where? The moral law. Then the third category that somewhat helps us wrap our minds around the law would be the ceremonial law. The burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the washings, anything related to the temple, the tabernacle, and then later on the temple worship, you know, the priests, the feast days, the festivals, all of this, all the types and the symbolisms which we know pointed to Christ. Now, in the Jewish mind, I don't think they thought about the law in those three ways. It helps us, the moral, the judicial, the ceremonial. It was all part of one unified law given to the nation of Israel. For us, it helps. They didn't think about it that way. And there's some controversy about whether you can divide the law like that. I'm not trying to get into that controversy. I'm just saying that the Jewish people, when they understood the law, they understood it in its unified existence as the law of Moses, which included moral precepts, judicial precepts, and ceremonial precepts. Now, what was meant by the prophets, the law and the prophets? Well, certainly the prophetic books of the Old Testament. What did the prophets do? Immediately, people are going to say, well, they prophesied. No, that's not, that was not their whole existence. The prophets taught the law, and they called God's people back to obey the law. They showed the people where they had broken the law and how they were to understand the law. Yes, they did prophesy as well, but one of their primary ministries was related to what? The law. 
What is also meant by the prophets is that example that I gave you that sometimes historical events were prophetic of the ministry of Christ. Out of Egypt I've called my son. And I, in your minds, I'd like you to go back to Luke chapter 24 as Jesus is standing on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples and he expounds from the scriptures all the things that are related to himself. That included the law, the prophets, the Psalms, certainly Psalm 22, all the Messianic Psalms, all the historical references that maybe we don't even understand today that referred to Christ. And folks, do you think that's a possibility? That there are things that are in the Old Testament that we don't understand how they relate to Christ? At least for me, I think that's true. And so Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy your scriptures. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that word destroy, very strong word. It means to abolish, to annul, to pull to pieces, to demolish, to utterly overthrow, to tear it down, smash it to the ground like destroying a building. Jesus is basically saying his relation to their scriptures is not destructive. He didn't come to do away with it. Can I say it as simply as that? He didn't come to do away with it. Jesus' coming does not do away, get this now, with any part of their Bible. Or can I say, our Bible. He will not teach against it. He will not annul it. He will not lay aside any of its commandments. He will not disobey any of it. He will not get rid of it. Notice the repetition of the word destroy. Did you catch that? Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy. I have a mission, and destruction is not part of that mission. I am come to fulfill. Well, I almost made it through one verse. Can you, as I tie this up to a close here, can you understand what was going on in the minds of the Jewish people when they saw Christ do what he did, heard what he said? And they're thinking, man, does he even believe the Bible? Now remember, they're living according to an interpretation of the law, not the actual law itself. These oral traditions that have been passed down at the time of Christ were, were more authoritative than the actual law itself. And he's going to key in on that. Verse 21, ye have heard that it was said. 
As you go through, you're going to see that again and again. Ye have heard that it was said. Ye have heard that it was said. Referring to the oral tradition, which in some cases was actually based on the law. And in their minds, they're thinking, who is this guy? Who is this man that is claiming to be from God? We see him healing people. We hear him teaching. And what was their, their uh, response to the teaching of Christ? Never a man spoke like this man. And yet, he never attended one of their Pharisees' schools. And so Jesus is laying out in the beginning of his sermon what his relation is to the Scriptures. And I'll have to get into it next week. His relation to the Scriptures is to fulfill them, not to abolish them. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, stay tuned. You'll find out next week or the week after, depending on how soon I get there. Remember, some have said this is the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret, and the reason it is is because it has some very important implications for us. How are we related to the law today? Is the law still in force? How does the law relate to the gospel? And folks, I grew up in a tradition called dispensationalism that says the law has nothing to do with Christianity today, and they're wrong. We live by grace, not by the law. And if you're trying to be saved by the law, yeah, that's true. You're not going to be saved by the law. But the law is still in force, certain parts of it. Can I say this? What Jesus Christ has fulfilled is no longer in force for the believer. Example of that would be the sacrifices. Christ fulfilled that. I'm glad I don't have to give up, get up every morning and sacrifice a lamb, aren't you? Christ fulfilled that. He became our Passover lamb and took our sins away. How we understand this is so very important because it gives us the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that link is Christ. Christ is the key to unlocking the Old Testament scriptures. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that you give us understanding. And I pray we are a simple people, Lord, and we ask for your spirit to give us understanding of this passage in particular and the mission of our Savior to fulfill the scriptures. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.